Hello, and welcome to a special edition of ABI Podcast. This is our 200th episode, and we have some fantastic guests for the occasion. I'm Professor Drew Dawson of the University of Miami School of Law and the Robert M. Zimmon Resident Scholar for the spring of 2017. Today I'll be talking with Chief Judge Brendan Shannon of the Delaware Bankruptcy Court and Professor Tony Casey of the University of Chicago, and our topic is side agreements in corporate bankruptcies. Judge Shannon has been a bankruptcy judge since 2006, and he has served as the Chief Judge of the Delaware Bankruptcy Court since 2014. Prior to ascending the bench, he was a partner at Young, Conaway, Stargate, and Taylor in Wilmington, Delaware. Tony Casey is a professor of law and Mark Claster Mamelin teaching scholar at the University of Chicago. Prior to joining academia, he was an associate at Wachtell Lipton and a partner at Kirkland and Ellis, where he worked on bankruptcy litigation, among other matters. Thank you both for joining me today. Delighted to be here. Great to be here. Tony, along with his co-authors, Kenneth Ayot and David Skeel, has a new paper out called Bankruptcy on the Side, which proposes a framework for analyzing side agreements in corporate bankruptcy. You can find a link to his paper on the ABI website, along with the link to this podcast. Tony, can you start us off today by introducing this general topic? What do you mean by side agreements? Sure. So the paper is looking at these side agreements, which uh, are agreements between two creditors, but not the debtor, uh, where the agreement might affect bankruptcy. And so that's why we call it a side agreement. It's the creditors having the agreement on the side. Uh, we, we look at the question of how courts should deal with these agreements, which might seem like an odd question. So someone might say, why don't we simply uh, enforce them? But it turns out to be a pretty tricky issue uh, that's caused some headache for bankruptcy judges. So if you, if you want, I'll start just kind of give the basic concept of, of what's at stake. That'd be great. Uh, when a corporate debtor enters into bankruptcy, uh, it has many different creditors, as its first lien creditors, its second lien creditors, third lien, unsecured. In certain cases now, there's what's called one-and-a-half lien creditors. Uh, and it's become common for various groups of creditors to, at the time they make the original loan, enter into agreements with other groups that really dictate how they're allowed to act when and if the debtor files for bankruptcy. Now, because these agreements are entered uh, ahead of time at the point in which the loan is made, you might think of them as like a private mini-bankruptcy system that dictates how those creditors among themselves are going to kind of deal with the distress of the debtor if it arises. So very commonly, a fir- a, the group of first-lien creditors will enter into an intercreditor agreement with second-lien creditors, and they'll have certain covenants about how they're going to act. These come in different flavors. So commonly, you'll see agreements that say the second-lien creditors can't, propo- can't propose dip financing, uh, debtor possession financing, without approval from the first-lien creditors, or they have to support certain bidding attempts, or they can't object to certain... Uh, positions that the other group takes. And sometimes even they'll have indemnification provisions or waterfall provisions that dictate who gets paid what and kind of divide their recoveries among that group. Now, key to all this is a whole bunch of other creditors who aren't party to the agreement. And the question becomes, how do you enforce them and whether you enforce them and do they have impacts on outsiders? Not much has been written kind of academically about this. The ABI Reform Commission flagged the issue and proposed that certain types of agreements like voting restrictions and and restrictions on debtor possession financing should be banned, uh, not enforced. But 
didn't really get to the big general question, and that's our focus in, in the paper, is what do we do with agreements that have these waivers of procedure and these dictates about who gets paid uh, when they arise in bankruptcy? If you look at what courts have done, they've kind of been all over the place, and part of our paper is to, to look for maybe a trend in what courts are doing. We suggest in one part, one part that sometimes courts might be acting pragmatically, deciding to enforce or not enforce these agreements uh, based on whether doing so furthers the debtor's efforts toward uh, restructuring. One standard solution that, that uh, courts have, one court has proposed and a few courts have followed is what we refer to as the Boston Generating uh, Test, which is to say, uh, in the court there said, um, we will enforce these if they're extra clear. They use the phrase clear beyond peradventure. So basically the court was saying, We'll allow parties to waive uh, certain bankruptcy procedures, but only if they're very, very clear about wanting to waive procedures. We worry that the result of that is going to be people having broad waivers when they only want narrow waivers because they want to make sure that they've checked the box to say, we, we really waive this. And, and so the negotiation ex ante is going to require broader waivers when parties don't want that. So why is this even difficult in the first place? Uh, and it turns out the problem is that these agreements raise externalities. So if, if the second lien lenders have waived their ability to propose debtor in possession financing or to object to a plan, that can hurt the unsecured creditors. And I'm just you know, kind of using different groups. The one-and-a-half lien creditor agrees mm -hmm. to some waiver, and that hurts another group. And, you know, if you think about bankruptcy, it's a collective action system. It's a system put in place to uh, coordinate group activity when we have collective action problems. And so if you allow one party to waive their procedures, that might be a procedure that was intended to, to benefit other parties. And turns out finding financing, raising objections is costly. So the big parties, the big creditors, might be better at doing that than some of the junior creditors. So in the paper, we model out the various ways that these waivers can reduce value for the estate, but also the ways that they can benefit the estate. Because, and the way they do that is often to streamline procedures when parties are raising objections that are needless or proposing financing or plans that are, are not in good faith or frivolous or trying to get hold of value. What we find is that these agreements can be very harmful if they're over-enforced because it robs the court of valuable information. But interestingly, under enforcement is not as big a problem. The worst case there is that the court has too much information. The courts are better at dealing with too much information than too little. So, for example, you can imagine it's not so hard to reject a bad plan or bad financing offer, but it is very hard to approve one that's never proposed. And ultimately, then, we reach the conclusion that we don't want to specifically enforce these agreements when uh, there might be externalities. But we do want to enforce them with expectation damages because the externalities go away if you have damages that are just tied to whatever the, the added cost that the objection uh, imposes. So in that world where you have expectation damages but not specific enforcement, uh, outsiders and junior creditors can reach a deal when it's efficient, but they won't reach a deal to... Uh, breach when it isn't efficient, so we get the right amount of bargaining. So the takeaway is if there's risk of externalities, we enforce for damages, but not specific performance. Um, this also gives us 
insight into a side question, and that's which courts should be deciding these. So as long as the parties are not seeking specific performance, and there's not the problem of externalities in the bankruptcy process, we might think it's less important for the bankruptcy judge to hold jurisdiction over the case. We might then allow other courts to decide whether or not there's damages and what those damages are. That's the gist of the paper. Now, it's a mo- it's an academic model, and so, as is often the case with academic models, there's some real-world complications. I'll just flag two before handing it over to, for, to Judge Shannon, who probably can point out many more. Um, first, if the party breaching can't pay the damages, if they're liquidity-constrained, wealth-constrained, uh, specific performance will be preferable. So we would worry about just allowing damages and not specific performance when the breaching party, the party who, who's agreed not to do something and is doing it, can't pay the damages. Second, in several cases, parties uh, have suggested that um, they're not willing to sign on to a reorganization bargain until they know how their damages and distribution under intercreditor agreements play out. Um, and if that were true, that means we can't reorganize the company without resolving the agreements, and then we'd want to bring the case back into the bankruptcy court. It's difficult to know if that is true. So it might be that the parties are posturing, and if we actually told them, listen, we're not going to resolve it, they'd still reach a bargain. But it might be that they're being sincere. Um, if, if they are, the likely causes would be liquidity constraints or some outside o- obligations like regulation, promise to investors about full resolution of the case before there's any partial resolution. Uh, in any event, we have to figure those things out if we were going to implement the proposal that me and my co-authors, uh, that my co-authors and I put forward. Uh, but the main theme here is, uh, generally speaking, we're going to get a better outcome if we do enforce the agreements, but we only enforce them for damages and not specific performance. And I'll add in the specific performance bucket also not allowing penalty clauses. So it has to be damages based on mm-hmm. the cost they actually impose. Fantastic. Thanks, thanks for the introduction and the, and the overview of your model and your paper. I want to turn to Judge Shannon now. Judge Shannon, do you see these issues in your courtroom? Uh, we see these issues all the time. Um, it's, a, it's a phenomenon that, uh, you know, that anybody that's been practicing for more than 10 or 15 years has absolutely seen over the course of their careers. You know, a few decades ago, um, and certainly at the time of the creation of the code, the concept would be that a a, um, a corporate debtor would likely have one secured creditor, typically a bank, and that the unsecured creditors would be the major players in the exercise. And over the past several decades, what we've seen is uh, more and more significant role for secured creditors at various levels throughout the uh, throughout the capital structure, um, playing roles and uh, exerting more and more leverage through the bankruptcy process. And so, um, the intercreditor arrangements are absolutely uh, commonplace in our cases because, uh, as uh, Tony said, cases come in with uh, first lien, second lien, third lien, competing liens, um, uh, mezzanine debt, etc., and they all have typically a, a some sort of memorialized relationship between each other. Um, and I have to say that as Tony walked through his description of the of the context and the issues, I, I absolutely agree that he's really laid out the the range of the issues. Um, as I said, we see these in every case that we have, uh, pretty much. Sometimes it comes up in a contested format, and sometimes it does not. But uh, I guess I'd have a couple observations to start. Uh, one is that both as professors and then for practitioners that are listening, um, it's 
probably worthwhile to be cognizant of the challenges that the court faces when dealing with these, particularly intercreditor agreements. Um, they typically arise very early in a case, often at a first-day hearing, when a party is looking to uh, to get approval of interim VIP financing. And if the senior creditor is providing it and the junior creditor thinks that this is actually going to turn out badly for them, they will often show up and seek to object or even uh, offer alternative financing. Um, in a typical situation, without an intercreditor agreement, that alternative financing might actually come to fruition or at least have the effect of improving the financing that's originally on the table from the senior. But if there's an intercreditor, we often face a situation where the senior creditor turns and says, the junior creditor is, per- is contractually precluded from complaining. They are obliged to consent to any sort of financing that we uh, are prepared to put on, and the financing that we have very often doesn't have anything in terms of adequate protection for you. Um, the challenge that the court faces is that that intercreditor agreement, and they come in all kinds of different uh, formats, they're very typically uh, negotiated between and among the parties. While there are some standard features, I don't believe that there's anything anybody would call a standard form. So the courts had maybe 24 hours to get familiar with the company, um, and I'll be honest, has a limited opportunity to really get an understanding and and, uh, the court's arms around the relative rights and duties under the uh, intercreditor agreement. So it's a challenge often right out of the box, if not on the first day, then certainly in the first few weeks. Um, When I look at at the enforcement of these issues, again, You're looking, uh, and I think this is consistent with the article. Uh, I think courts look to see who is, who is complaining. Um, if it is in fact the juniors that are complaining about the enforcement and, and that it is perhaps impairing the rights, um, you know, that will look to the intercreditor agreement. And if indeed these are rights that they've clearly, uh, given away, then the easiest course for the court is to take is to treat it as a contract and enforce it as written within the four corners of the document. But you're right. Uh, when when Tony mentioned the externalities, often we'll see a creditors committee. We'll may even see competing uh, bidders or other parties that will come in and say, "This is yielding a result that's not uh, that's not frankly best for the estate and for all stakeholders." The debtor is often in a in a very compromised position because they've made their deal or they've. They're obliged to be um, supportive and allied with their senior secured creditor. Um, and so the concern expressed by the authors of the article that opportunities may be lost because of simply the presence of the agreement, I think, is absolutely true. Um, but as I said, one of the real challenges the court faces is that we have very limited time to get uh, to, to understand and construe the intercreditor agreement itself. And then an equal concern is that we have very limited visibility into the dynamic between the parties. We don't necessarily know that there really is an alternative transaction out there or a better deal. And so, you know, the, they present, I think, some of the some of the most difficult circumstances that we have, particularly when, as, uh, as Tony suggested, you'll get uh, stakeholders that will stand in front of you and say, you know, enforcement of this uh, intercreditor agreement and keeping us on the path, perhaps, that's been dictated by the senior lender under the terms of the, under the rights that it asserts under the intercreditor will result in, usually the speech is, they're going to take the whole company and there won't be anything left for us. And that's not a result that is absolutely dictated by the economics of this judge. So please afford us some flexibility and some play in the joints to move forward.
Um, and courts, I think, are um, reluctant, especially early in a case, to preclude um, the involvement and engagement of really any stakeholder that wants to participate in the process. Um, I think I would, uh, before turning it back to Tony, I think I'd also say that one of the real um, complex issues that's raised here is an intercreditor agreement is typically between two non-debtors. Um, yes, there are uh, a growing trend, I think, of debtors actually being signatories to the intercreditor agreement, but I think that's the exception more than the rule. So there's always an incentive uh, by the court or by other parties to say, you know something, this is something that either you don't have jurisdiction over or you're not obliged to consider and therefore send these parties to state court and they can figure out what their respective damages is, but judge, continue to administer our bankruptcy case, but let them go fight somewhere else. And again, there's attractiveness to that uh, from the point of view of, of the court, but one of the difficulties with that situation is that often it's not entirely clear that leaving that issue unresolved, and I know that that was the circumstance in Momentum and some of the other cases that are discussed in the article, but leaving that dispute unresolved often leaves the um, the bankruptcy case in limbo because, as Tony said, I think parties aren't necessarily going to commit significant capital or resources where they're not certain that they're going to wind up owning the asset that they're trying to reorganize right now. So I, I think the bottom line is that the authors have hit on something that is an is a very difficult uh, dynamic for the courts to deal with, and it is one that is probably only getting more um, uh, uh, more significant uh, in the restructuring world rather than less. Yeah, one one comment. Uh, I mean, when when Anna mentioned the the reluctance to preclude parties from the process, we the way we kind of phrase frame this in the paper is. It, to suggest that what we're proposing is really consistent with a lot of other things in bankruptcy, um, we often, through the automatic stay and through other uh, provisions in the code, we stop parties from removing key assets to uh, the estate from the estate. So that we say you can't remove, you can't foreclose on that because that's a key asset to to the reorganization. So you might think about parties the same way. You know, the senior lender can't remove the voice of the junior lender when that voice is a key voice in the estate because, as Judge Shannon suggested, you might see the creditors, creditors committee saying, we need to hear this process out. We need to hear the financing being proposed by the, the, the second lien lenders or the objections that they're going to raise to the financing that the first liens have brought. Um, and so... We consistent with our automatic stay, and when it comes to assets, we would say you can't remove a key voice or a key party. But also consistent with that, you still have the the interest in the assets that's going to get a payout, and you still have an interest in your intercreditor agreement that has the damages payout. So you still get the damages at the end of the day, but you don't get to specifically enforce it to take the voice out. Um, and as Judge Shannon suggested, you know, then the attractive thing would be for the bankruptcy judge to say, that's fine, then let this go to another court and they can decide the damages issue. And, and I do think when we're just talking about figuring out the damages, most courts are going to be on equal footing uh, to do that. But there is this lurking problem of does leaving that unresolved really uh, throw a wrench in the process? And you know, I'm, I'm both sympathetic to that problem, but also skeptical 
because I would imagine parties are going to say that even when it's not true sometimes. And, and mm-hmm. you know, it's impossible for, I think, for, certainly from an academic point of view, but I would think it's also difficult for a judge to know when the parties are sincere about that or what, how common that actually you, is that it's true. You've really hit the nail on the head because it, there are a lot of situations where the court is presented with uh, a situation that uh, you know the threat that at least the position of the parties and their stated arguments are are going to imperil the reorganization. And you know the easiest example, a different context. The easiest example is, of course, a potential bidder who says, "Judge, if you don't give me my timeline, if you don't give me my auction when I want it, if you don't give me these protections, I'm going to walk in the whole and the whole bankruptcy case will fall apart." And that's difficult. Again, we have a we have a framework within within which to understand that we do get information from parties. Um, we don't necessarily have as much visibility into the thought process of the lenders um, because often they're diverse groups that act as a committee um, or act by committee through single counsel or even multiple counsel. So you're never entirely sure what their economic and practical motivations are. Um, and one of the other uh, issues that comes up with this is you don't necessarily know if you send it off to a different court. You have no idea when a ruling is going to occur. So there's a uh, there's an enormous pressure on the bankruptcy court actually to keep the matter um, under its own uh, jurisdiction because if in fact it's true that you need an answer on this question before you can get to the sale hearing or you need an answer on this question before you get the confirmation, as the bankruptcy judge you can say, fine, I'll schedule it in advance, but I can't call a district court and California or a state court in New York and say, um, I need you to get me the opinion. Um, that's just not one of the options that we have. Um, I think, though, one of the other um, issues that's raised by this is as we evaluate how we interpret and construe these contracts um, is an issue of creditor expectations and, and participant expectations. And, Tony, you touched on it that parties that lend, particularly on a secured basis, understand the concept of adequate protection and the implications of a bankruptcy. And a lot of the intercreditor agreements are built around expectations of what rights can be asserted and, and what rights cannot be asserted in a bankruptcy. Um, so the, the pushback that we will hear, particularly from the senior creditors, is um, you know, these are the rights that we bargained for. These are the rights upon which we lent money in expectation that they would be respected. And while, Judge, you may not be very enthusiastic about the result, there's no legal reason upon which uh, you should or can uh, not vindicate or at least uh, uh, enforce the rights that we've had. And, and I think, again, the, your, your paper talks through how to, um, how to at least rationalize that. Mm. Yeah, I mean, it, it is interesting, the idea of the bargain for rights. Um, there's lots of lots of things in bankruptcy suspend bargain for rights, and and so um, you know the point I was making earlier was well we we don't let you foreclose on assets, so we might not let you spe- specifically enforce these. But of course, as Judge Chen has pointed out, well, all right, we have a code provision that that gives us the first one. Do we have the second one? And and it's a little harder to get there. And so, part of our proposal is, you know, a policy proposal. You know, if if it's in the code, you'd have to you have to work to find it um, to say we're not going to enforce these. Is kind of a, pol- a you know bankruptcy policy uh, issue. But you know, 
in a, in a world where we could rewrite the code, our suggestion is you, you would include this in the automatic stay to say you can't, uh, you're going to be stayed from stopping people from exercising uh, valuable rights that run to the estate as a whole. Um, it is it is true though that it, it's harder to whether that it, whether that is already in the code or not it is less clear. How have courts gotten there? I mean, I know in some of the early cases you cite in your paper, Tony, of courts would just not enforce these at all, sort of invoking sort of a public policy justification. What is the gateway through the bankruptcy? Yeah, I think code? that's the you know the. The way you get the standard, the the higher standard, or you know, there's there's two ways to get there. Is one is to say, well, I don't think it says what what the party what the party asserting it says that it says, um, and you know, the, the clear beyond peradventure. I'm not sure quite where where you get that new standard of contract interpretation from, in unless you're just saying, well, you know, I'm going to interpret a contract under regular rules of, of contract interpretation, but I'm going to add a thumb on the scale that comes from bankruptcy you know, kind of underlying bankruptcy policy. Um, certainly some of the more, some of the recent cases, the most recent case I think of, uh, it was straight up contract interpretation that said, well, you know, it doesn't say that, we're not going to enforce it. You know, there is this question of, well, are the courts uh, saying they're doing contract interpretation, but it, but in the background putting that thumb on the scale. Um, but there are, in other contexts, there are lots of cases where courts have said, I'm not going to enforce a contract that tries to undo the mandatory bankruptcy code that we have. Um, and uh, you know, I, I think there's enough tradition of that, enough precedent for that, that if, if you want to say these are really undoing bankruptcy process, in some sense they are, uh, I don't think it would be outlandish to go there, right? So, so you're, you're infusing the code with a, po- a purpose and saying you, you can't undo that purpose. But this gets into kind of interpretation methods and, and people's theories of, of textualism, et cetera. But um, I certainly think there's lots of, there is precedent to, to get you to saying these things are against the policy of the code, a mandatory code that we have. Well, and to speak to Tony's comment about the idea of, you know, a thumb on the scale, that's not necessarily an image I, I embrace or would encourage, but as a practical matter, um, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a factor that's out there and I think I'd put it in its most blunt terms. Uh, bankruptcy is not a two-party proceeding, so you don't necessarily determine that the plaintiff is one and the defendant loses and must pay. Um, rather, it's a collective proceeding. Um, and there's been a lot of ink spilled about how that process plays itself out and what principles should drive it. But one of the real challenges, I think, that particularly a senior secured creditor uh, faces um is that it has taken steps before the bankruptcy, consistent with the law, presumptively, um, to uh, protect itself, perhaps more than anyone else. Um, and that's fine. The law permits that. But one of the real challenges or one of the real uh, difficulties that any bankruptcy court faces is providing a stakeholder, uh, a creditor in a bankruptcy case, with what at least... Uh, optically looks like a windfall. Now, again, the senior secured creditor can say, if my contract provides for it, it cannot be a windfall. It was negotiated at arm's length between sophisticated parties. But where it provides for a recovery that looks like 130% um, and everyone else is getting nothing or five cents on the dollar, then it sure looks like uh, like a windfall. And bankruptcy courts have, uh, in a variety of different contexts, struggled mightily 
uh, and usually successfully, to avoid giving a party a windfall. And again, when you talk about uh, some of the cases that you've discussed, momentive, uh, energy futures, and others, particularly dealing recently with, with make-hold payments, um, you know, I, I certainly am not going to comment on Judge Drain and Judge Sanchi's analysis in those two cases in the Third Circuit just recently ruled. But it's a complex analysis that the bankruptcy courts have imposed about uh, acceleration and the impact of the automatic stay um, in order to limit, uh, to the greatest extent possible, the recoverability of a make-hole. One, because it looks like a, a, um, uh, like a windfall but also because in the context, I think, of both of those cases, payment of that make-hole to the senior creditor would have really reduced the, um, the optionality within the case of, of moving forward with a restructuring. And so courts are at least, I don't want to say putting a thumb on the scale, but they are at least keeping an eye on what the practical effects of the assertion of those rights would be. Right, and I think that's the the last point. There is super important, right? So, so windfalls are you know distasteful. We don't, of course, might not like them in, in, in standing alone, but when they then corrupt the process, they become really problematic, right? And, and so, you might have an intercreditor agreement that's a windfall, and if it it has no effect on the bankruptcy process, that's one thing. But if it's going to have an externality on other parties and, and change the way it plays out. Um, it, it it doesn't seem to be you, you, it seems to me a good thing that we want to look extra carefully at that kind of uh, enforcing that kind of thing. Tony, I don't I don't want to put you on the spot, but let me ask you a question about the the methodology that you've identified, which mm-hmm. is essentially if the enforcement of the rights under the intercreditor fall, if the effects of that fall largely on the counterparty to the inner creditor, then your suggestion would be you enforce it. That's what the parties had agreed to, and it doesn't have a do violence to bankruptcy principles, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, yeah. If yeah. You, and if you have a different situation where, again, enforcement of the rights that are set forth in the inner creditor have knock-on effects on other constituencies, we call them externalities, I guess, um, then the court would be reluctant to, uh, or, or should be cherry of moving forward with enforcing those rights, given the con- given the consequences. Do I have that right? Uh, specifically enforcing them, yes, that's right. Sure. So then the, the question I expect that I would hear from a secured creditor, at least in terms of a, having a conference on this topic or discussing it, is how will I know? Yeah. I've negotiated, so, so- I've negotiated for these rights. My goal is to have them as part of the bundle of rights that I have in exchange for the hundreds of millions of dollars that I've put into this company. How will I be able to predict what the court will respect and what the court will not respect? Yeah, so my, my co-author tonight had, had kind of long conversations about this question, and, and where I come out on this is that there should be a strong presumption that these things have externalities. And, and I, I, think, um, I think that's fair... To kind of empirically, I would think that probably would hold out, hold up. You know, I haven't done a test of it, but my 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 intuition is, is that they generally do. Um, and we don't want the court to have like a whole trial and hearing on whether or not there's an externality on a third party. We we don't want that because then you're just really litigating the motion that we're asking whether or not you waive the motion, etc. Um, so so. You want a presumption that there are externalities, and so if I, if, if the secure creditor asked me that, I'd say, well, you should assume probably you can't get this specifically enforced, unless you can show. And so one example would be if you can show you know, the value is just such that it's your company anyway, 
then stopping the junior creditor who's way out of the money from providing dip financing, or let's say the first and second have an agreement, and it's clear that, that the second is the fulcrum lender, then we know there's no externality. Um, but that's the kind of burden that would be on the party saying, I want to specifically enforce. Um, I have to show that, that there is no externality here. And it'll be a high burden. So if you were you know, kind of predicting when you're writing the agreement, you should predict that you probably won't be able to specifically enforce. You get the damages. Um, that's the, you know, and, and that's not perfect, right? Because they're going to say, wait a second, I, you know, you're leaving this some little bit of uncertainty and, and you're not allowing me to, to contract for certain things. But you know, the same is true with foreclosure, right? You might be able to foreclose with a Debtor might file for bankruptcy. You're not you're not certain what's going to happen, and that's yeah. Actually, I, I think that's actually a fair point. That um, you know the I, I think a well advised secured lender would say list all the rights that you can possibly think of to my lawyer, and um, uh, whatever I can enforce, I'll enforce, and whatever I can't enforce, you know, all I've lost is is uh, you know the again the the ink on the agreement, but. Um, and then you'd be advised about certain rights. And again, there's a host of rights that are built into every contract, including ipso facto provisions and others, right. that um, that aren't going to be enforceable anyway. So that's actually probably an accurate description of how it would play out in the real world. Well, that's about the end of our time here. Thank you both for joining us. This was our 200th episode, and it was a real treat to celebrate that milestone by having you both here discussing this important topic. And thank you to our listeners for tuning in. If you enjoyed this, don't forget we have an archive of past episodes on the ABI website. Until next time, this is Drew Dawson on behalf of ABI. Thanks for listening to this edition of ABI Podcast.